Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we praise you this day and we honor you and we bless you. Lord, we are filled with joy at the very thought of you. Lord, you're wonderful, you're amazing, and we praise you. We glorify you. We remind ourselves this day, God, that you are in heaven and that heaven is your throne and that the earth is nothing but your footstool, God, that you hold the whole world in your hands. And indeed, that you are, uh, by a mighty providence, governing everything that is in the world and bringing it all to an expected end, an end which you have uh, uh, planned long ages ago, that you have now revealed to us through your holy apostles and prophets. And, And God, we are just exceedingly grateful that you are in control and that nothing escapes you. And that, Lord, even as your eye is on the little bitty sparrow, that, Lord, your eye is upon us to do us good and not to harm us, God, because we have found favor in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Christ, which washes away our sins. And we thank you for his perfect, righteous life, which gives to us a right standing with you. We thank you, Lord, that we have been reconciled to you through the blood of his cross. We are grateful for the privilege that we have this day to freely proclaim your word in this place. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that we might love you with everything that is within us, and that we might love our neighbor as ourself. Because of Jesus' holy cross, we pray. Amen. Okay, so. um, This morning, our lesson is going to be starting on page 5. Before I get going, I was going to answer the question that we had about Genesis 3.15. And if you want, you, you can follow a little bit. Looking back at page uh, the bottom of page four and the top of page five, and we were talking there about the proto-evangel, which is the announcement of the gospel, the first occurrence of the announcement of the gospel in Scripture, which is in Genesis chapter three and verse fifteen, and it reads like this: "And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head." And you shall bruise him on the heel. And, of course, we were saying there that 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 was the first announcement of the gospel. And this, of course, is on page 4 at the bottom. And that it's interesting that this is announced when God is cursing the serpent um, at the fall of man. And so kind of the point I was trying to make in the beginning was is that as soon as sin enters onto the scene in the human story, God comes immediately with a promise. A promise to overcome that work of the devil by which man had fallen into sin and into death. And uh, so the question was brought up that uh, I'm going to try to restate what I think our brother was, was getting at. 
uh, is that he was saying that if, if you believe that the woman's seed there in that verse uh, was Christ, then you must also believe that the serpent has power to bruise the heel of Christ and that this was problematic because Satan does not have power over Christ. Did I restate that right? Um, so, uh, agreed. I, I, I agree with that entirely. That if you take uh, the woman's seed to be Christ, then you must also logically infer from the verse that um, Satan, who is the serpent there, will bruise him on the heel and that he will have some sort of power to do that. Uh, that, that I agree with. I think that's logically consistent with what the verse is saying. Um, however, I don't think that's problematic, and here's why. I just want to explain that um, because Satan is given power over Jesus, and that is by the Father's plan. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 11 actually says that, where Jesus is telling Pilate that, that you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by God. And so if you will... There is a very real sense in which Satan is given power to bruise the heel of Christ or to bruise him in this way. And so uh, uh, even to have him killed by the hands of godless men. Even the very deception of Judas was attributed to Satan, Luke 22, 3 through 6, much less the evil works of the Jews and the Romans and the Gentiles who killed him unjustly. So what I'm saying is, is that I don't really see a problem in, in that interpretation of the verse because uh, Satan is actually given power by God uh, to bruise Christ. And so then and therefore, I believe that that statement of the bruising of Christ has primarily in view the crucifixion. Uh, however, I think there's a little bit more to it than that that I'm going to comment on. But I want to point your attention to a couple of verses in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 2. When we talk about God giving authority or power to Satan to bruise Christ, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, that is Jesus, Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so there is a, a statement in the New Testament talking about God's providence in the cross. And there's another one just a couple of pages over in chapter 4, verse 27. Turn there. These are scriptures that you really ought to have memorized. At least you ought to remember where they are. Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.27. And here's what uh, Acts 4.27 says. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And there again you see that this verse is stating that Herod, Pilate, 
the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were all planned by God to carry out this work of the cross. And if you will, if you're familiar with the narrative of the story of the passion of Christ, you find that each one of those people groups actually played a very important role in the crucifixion of Christ. But the point here is is that the New Testament clearly teaches that all happened by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and, and if you will, by his decree. Okay? So, um, so then I, I don't think it's really problematic to, uh, to assume that in Genesis 3.15 that, number one... Um, that the woman's seed has primarily in view Christ, and that um, when it talks about him being bruised on the heel, that that's a direct reference to the crucifixion. When I, when uh, I was presented with the question, I, I really haven't put a lot of time into studying this, and I want to be very careful in answering those things, you know, without really, uh, with, with, really with being in ignorance. <laughs> so... Uh, praise God, I have the opportunity to go away and spend a little time studying that and looking into it. And, and, uh, and if you will, when I started digging into that, I found the most fascinating things in the Scripture. And I, I want to just kind of point some of these things out to you and maybe stir up your interest in looking into some of these Old Testament passages and, and, and uh, uh, a little deeper. So... On the phrase, and between your seed and her seed, the woman obviously does not have a seed. Um, and as another brother pointed out to me this morning, that wasn't necessarily widely known in ages gone by. You know, Of course, with modern medicine, we, we're, we're, we're well aware of that. However, the Bible speaks of that uh, clearly. In other words, if you do a little study on... Uh, uh, a man and a woman's seed in the Bible, you'll find clearly that the man is, is typically attributed with that uh, quality in the reproductive process. So the point is, in the verse, the woman obviously does not have a seed. Therefore, this verse points us to a supernatural mystery that must somehow find its fulfillment in one of Eve's, Eve's progeny. So if you're with me, reading verse Genesis 3.15, it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. So here the Bible is, is attributing the woman to have this seed, and what I'm saying is somehow that doesn't work out right. That doesn't even fit. So it must be pointing to some kind of supernatural reality, um, uh, speaking about the very seed of Eve or her progeny, her children. Okay, So it's obviously pointing to her children, but there's some supernatural element to it because a woman doesn't have a seed. That progeny is identified in this verse as a he, a single male. Okay? After knowing then the course of history, now, now we're going to move forward to where we are now, looking back on this verse in Genesis 3.15 and interpreting it with the knowledge that we've been given now through Christ and the New Testament. All right? Looking back on history uh, and knowing uh, that the Messiah who came by virgin birth and dealt the bruise to the head of the serpent, it is rather clear that this is a messianic prophecy. So the more I look into that, the more I, I feel comfortable in, in making that assertion. Uh, number two, about that little section of text, I did not find a single commentator who did not believe this was a messianic prophecy announcing the gospel by pointing to Christ and the cross. 
several also held this was a prophecy of the virgin birth. Um, I do not tend, I, I do tend to lean that way. However, cannot be dogmatic about it as the scripture does not make this explicit. What I'm saying is, is that I didn't find a single commentator who didn't think this was a messianic prophecy. And I'm just giving you all of this info because I spent some time studying it. It was just fascinating. This study, I would uh, encourage you to go do it. Um, And I know nobody said this wasn't a messianic prophecy. I'm just giving you some additional information. Um, That... um, We can't just come right out and say, well, because those things are rather obvious in the text, we we can't make dogmatic assertions about what the Bible says if the Bible doesn't make that explicit to us. You understand what I'm saying? So I haven't taken the dogmatic stance that this is absolutely a messianic prophecy. However, it does seem rather clear to me. uh, And the more I look into it, the more that seems to be even clearer. Uh, but I, I, I kind of, at the same time, as a Bible teacher, I want to teach you to be discerning about how you use the scriptures. And so even though uh, it may seem rather evident that this is a messianic prophecy, we got to be really careful about being dogmatic about that because the Bible doesn't explicitly teach that. You follow me? Yes. I didn't get a chance to look into the Hebrew, but I was in the course of my study. I thought it's interesting that the he is capitalized. Many times that's a translator thing, though, and not necessarily a uh, so that, like, for instance, the translators might be reading that verse and thinking, oh, this is a messianic prophecy. That must be talking about Christ. We need to capitalize that. Well, if you will, that's something they decided to do, not something God decided to do. It's not always that way, but many times it is. Yes, Clifford. Uh, if we say that the seed of Mary is uh, Jesus through the virgin birth, who is the seed of Satan? It says your seed. Who is the seed of Satan? Uh-huh. That's a good question. I think that's rather clear in the context of Genesis, right, that the seed of Satan are, are those who do evil. And if you will, in New Testament revelation, that becomes very clear in the teaching of Jesus that anybody who's not born again is a child of the devil. And, and uh, more clear than even in the uh, first epistle of John, where John says, this is how we know who the children of God and the children of the devil are. Right? Anyone who does not do what is righteous is not a child of God. First John 3, 9 and 10. So I think that uh, the Bible answers that question really clearly. Some, some of the commentaries say it's the Antichrist. So. Uh-huh. I, I'm sure that he, he could be in view there, <laughs> right? But certainly he is in view in, in, um, in the explanation that I gave because it would include all unbelievers, right, of whom he is embodied in the flesh, Satan himself, right? It's amazing. How many questions open up by looking at this one little verse, isn't it? Uh, There's some more things I want to say. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Think about these things. The contrast between a bruise on the head of a serpent 
And the bruise on the heel of a man is clearly showing or representing a death blow versus a minor wound. You follow me? It pictures a severe blow to the serpent's head, the superior part of his uh, anatomy, right? And a minor blow to the heel, the inferior part of the anatomy of a man. Are you with me? So if you bruise a serpent on the head, that's a severe death blow. If you bruise a man on the heel, it's more like an annoyance. You with me? Then it is a, a severe thing. Um, two, the bruise on the head of the serpent is the cross. It is the death blow to the serpent, rendering him powerless. He, he will be destroyed at the great white throne judgment. Something else that I came across as I began to, uh, to look at this was the New Testament, I was uh, uh, interested to find, never talks about Satan actually being destroyed at the cross. Instead, what it says is, is that the work of Satan was destroyed at the cross or that the work of Satan was rendered powerless at the cross. And this is what the scripture says. How about John 12:31? Jesus says this. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Okay. This is just before his crucifixion. And he says this. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So Jesus is pointing to the cross and he's saying that the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. And so New Testament terminology speaks about the cross as rendering Satan powerless, rendering his work powerless and dethroning him from his position of ruler of the present age. Okay? How about uh, 1 John 3.8? There it says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay? And, and of course, that's pointing to his first advent. But also, how about Colossians 2.15? When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so here in Colossians 2.15, it's saying that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. And that he made a public display or spectacle of them having triumphed over them by the cross. Okay? And, and specifically the cross is in view in those few verses in Colossians 2. But how about also in Hebrews chapter 2, there it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So there, Hebrews is explaining that through the death of Christ, he rendered the devil powerless, who had power over death. Okay? And uh, these are amazing things. Uh, and and um, so my point was is that uh, the, the death blow to the serpent came at the cross. It is what rendered him powerless. It was a blow. It's kind of like walking out in the backyard and there's a big old nasty rattlesnake there and you walk over with a shovel and you bop him on the head. You ever done that before? Ever seen that happen? He doesn't always just die. <laughs> but he sits there and wiggles for a while. How many of you have seen a wiggling snake on his way to death? That's what Satan is right now. What you see going on in the world is his last-ditch effort 
But he has already been rendered powerless. And death has already been conquered. Amen? He's just a wiggling snake. What do you think of that? I think it's a glorious thing. God help us. Do we have hope in anything else? Uh, another point, the bruise on the heel of the woman's seed is undoubtedly a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. It is a blow to the Christ, but not a death blow. Because death did not have power over him, then this he proved by the resurrection. Uh, Jesus proved that death did not have power over him by the resurrection. Okay? This portrait of the woman's seed is a specific announcement of the cross, picturing both the death blow to the serpent and the heel bruise of the woman's seed on the cross. So what I'm saying is in Genesis 3.15, it's, it, 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 the more I, I look at this, the clearer I see what's really being said here. You know, he's going to talk about how Satan is going to be overcome, but at the same time he talks about the means and, and as that happens, how even the woman's seed himself is going to be bruised. And, and had we not had the, the New Testament knowledge about the resurrection, we would consider that quite a blow, wouldn't we? That the Messiah himself was actually crucified and killed upon the cross. Had we not had the good report of the resurrection, we might think that somehow that bruise of the serpent was actually quite severe. But then we find it was simply the means by which Satan was dealt his final death blow and Christ rose to live again forevermore. Amen? It's amazing uh, what all can be contained in a little scripture like that in the Old Testament. Uh, When I was digging into this whole thing, I found some other views of it all that were really intriguing. I'm just going to briefly mention this to you. If you want more information, you're going to have to go study this. But this is one of those things where I'm digging in these Old Testament passages. I'm thinking, good night. We could teach for weeks on this stuff. It's just so rich. The scripture is so rich. One view that I would like to comment on is that the entire church is seen in this prophecy as triumphing over Satan. In this view, the whole church is seen as the woman's seed, being in Christ, who is the head of the body, and the church being the body thereof. So what's, what's being said in this view is that the woman's seed actually represents the entire church. Okay, um, Because the church is bound up in Christ, of which he is the head and she is his body. Okay, Furthermore, Uh, This is because Eve is pictured in the Old Testament type as the mother of all the living. She's actually considered by many Old Testament scholars to be the first picture of the church in the Old Testament as a type. So remember I was telling you about types and shadows? That the, the very name Eve means this, the mother of all the living. And she, if you're familiar with the study of this, is, is, is a picture of the church. And so, if you will, this woman's seed then would be all the living, okay? Um, So there's this whole view of this prophecy actually speaking of the whole church and not just Christ himself. Christ is in view, but also with his church, with his saints, okay? And, And therefore, the same is true. The woman's seed 
must somehow bruise the serpent's head, which means all the church must somehow bruise his head, and that he will bruise uh, the seed's heel, which means that somehow he must bruise all the church's heel, if you will. Okay, so... um, This portrait of the church being the woman's seed is lent credence uh, by various Bible types and scriptures such as these. Consider Romans 16.20. There it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Or how about in Revelation chapter 12 verses 9 through 11. Here's what the scripture says there. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. Okay. And again, the church is spoken of in the New Testament as overcoming him. And there are many various references to this or overcoming his work. Okay. Um, So then. Furthermore, the bruising of the heel of the woman's seed is seen in the many trials, temptations, and persecution of God's saints down throughout the ages. So there's this whole other view where people, uh, different commentators take this view that uh, the entire church throughout the ages is in view in Genesis 3.15. I think that's very intriguing. And uh, uh, there's a lot of of, uh, work you could do looking into other supporting scripture and so on and so forth. If you're really interested in that, send me an email. And I I compiled all of my commentators and study notes in this document that I was using to do this little study, and I'll email it to you. Okay? All righty. So let's see here. So we're on to page five. And there, um, the, the point of our first few pages of the lesson here was that throughout the whole narrative of the Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament as a unified whole. And in that narrative of the Bible, God is revealing his work in the history of creation to us, namely the plan of redemption. And that because God has a plan to redeem, right, the Redeemer and his work on the cross is the central or focal point of that. If you will, just look back at page uh, 2 just for a moment. And there's that chart there that talks about God's plan of redemption. And uh, right above that, 
uh, right above the cross, it says Jesus the Christ. And, and what you have is, in the Old Testament, you have these messianic types and prophecies all pointing to the saving work of Christ on the cross, which we're going to talk some more about today. But then in the New Testament, you have all of these verses that look back at the cross and talk about God's plan of redemption from before creation, saying that when Christ came at the first advent, and he was sacrificed on the cross, that this is the mystery that had been kept hidden for ages past, but now had been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets. And if you will, there's a reference on that chart in the bottom right corner, Ephesians 3, 9 through 12. However, there are many scriptures that speak about that. They're listed there in the, in the timeline in the chart on the New Testament side. Do you see that? So if you'll go look up those references, you'll see these are references to this mystery that had been kept hidden for long ages past. But when Christ came, he showed up on the scene, God in the flesh, he did the work of his ministry, and he fulfilled this mystery of God. And so that now through the cross and the gospel, this this thing has come to fruition, and now God is saving all the nations. Now God is proclaiming the gospel to every creature under heaven. Okay? And he is taking for himself a people from every tribe and language and nation and people on the face of the earth. Amen? So that throughout the entire biblical narrative, both Old and New Testaments, Jesus Christ is the focal point of it all. And his work on the cross. Okay? Because in this whole creation, okay, look on the chart there, the second box from the top. It says, the heavens and the earth are simply a stage created by God to work out his eternal plan of redemption and reveal his glory. It was accomplished at the cross. So what we're saying is, is that the earth exists for this purpose, (laughs) for God to work out his plan of redemption. That's why it's here. Right? Obviously, it's, it's here to reveal the glory of God. And that all these things serve the highest purpose of God, which is to manifest his own glory and excellency as God. But what is the chief way in, in all of history that God manifests his excellence and glory as God? Well, it's on the cross, right? Like John Piper tells us, that the cross is the blazing center of the glory of God. It's on the cross where the glory of God is revealed in so many marvelous and mysterious ways. Amen? And so, if you will, that becomes the center focus of everything. So that everything that God created is a way for him to reveal his own glory and excellency. How is he doing that? He's doing it through a plan of redemption. He's doing that from redeeming mankind. How do we know that? Because he planned the cross from before the foundation of the world. Look on the chart there, the bottom center box. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. That Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You see, Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It's all in the plan of God for Jesus to come and die on the cross. That's the focal point of human history. That's the reason why everything exists. You with me? Okay, that's, a, that's an amazing statement. Think about that. It, it'll help you order your priorities. 
when you figure out what's chief on God's agenda, then you'll, you'll start to get a clue what ought to be chief on your agenda because he's the one who gives you your very next breath. <coughs> Amen? Okay. Well, so then we talked about the fact that, that Christ the Messiah was clearly portrayed in the Old Testament and that throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament, it's constantly and continually pointing to Christ through various types and shadows and messianic prophecies. Amen? You remember that? Okay, well, so today I want to show you some of those so that as you're reading in the Old Testament, you have a keen eye to, 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 to get a biblical view of the Savior. Okay, so remember that when you're reading in the Old Testament, what's the point of it all? Okay, Christ. Christ is the focal point. When you're reading in the New Testament, what's the point of it all? Christ. He's the focal point. He's the Lord, right? When it's all said and done, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that what? To the glory of God the Father, right? When it's all said and done and the ages are consummated and everybody's on their knees before God, this is what's going to be coming out of their mouth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? That's what the Bible says. So, before we look at these, I just want to, want to point this, this out to you. And that is themes that are present in Old Testament messianic prophecies. Okay, Here's something that you're going to find almost every time you find a messianic type. You're going to find at least one of these, if not more. Okay, Before we look at the clear references of Jesus Christ the Savior in the Old Testament, let us consider that certain themes season these messianic prophecies in the Bible. These themes are present to show us the nature of true and acceptable worship to God. So when you think about the Old Testament prophesying about Jesus, I want you to see these things that always season the, the storyline, okay? And here's what they are. Atonement for sin or sacrifice, okay? How many of you know there's a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament? More than we care to number, <laughs> Right? It's the Old Testament's filled with sacrifice. Think how many people are confused about that. Right? They have all kinds of strange ideas about blood sacrifice in the Old Testament. Right? But think with your understanding of Christ in the New Testament, how simple it is to know that all of those things are pointing to him. And that it, not only that, but it's pointing to a chief and fundamental problem that we all have. And more than that, that we all need a personal sacrifice, do we not? Amen? And without the shedding of blood, there'll be no remission of sin. That's what the Bible says. Amen? So, in these Old Testament Messianic prophecies, you'll frequently find this theme, atonement for sin or sacrifice, so that when Jesus is portrayed... We see this atonement. Now, atonement means to cover over. When you think of the word atonement, I know people will talk about it as at-one-ment, or they, they like the idea of reconciliation and atonement. And it is there. It most definitely is there. Um, but the, the, the root meaning of the word is to cover over. Okay? And if you will, you remember the, um, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant? The gold box that they used to carry around that sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? Well, 
there was a cover that went on that. Remember that? You know what that was called? The mercy seat or the atonement cover. Okay? And and if you will, um, that the idea of atonement is, of course, in relation to sin, to cover over. Okay? To cover over. So when you think about atonement, specifically for sin, you can think about sins being covered over. Okay? All right. Sin, sin must be dealt with. Old Testament types almost always stress the need for an atoning sacrifice. These show us the severe nature of sin and the desperate need we have to be reconciled to God. Okay? Let me give you an example. The Levitical sacrificial system. Okay, do you know what I'm referring to there? The, the, when, when God came to uh, Israel and he uh, led them in the exodus out of Egypt and they got out in the desert and he gave Moses at Mount Sinai specific instructions about how to make a tabernacle or a tent by which God was to be worshipped in certain rites and practices in the ceremonial law, Right? Well, in that, there was a whole uh, set of uh, ritual sacrifices that the priests were to carry out at different times and seasons and days, and God gave them very specific and explicit instructions on how to carry out those sacrifices, right? Well, the men who were charged with that within the family of Israel were the Levites, okay? And so when we talk, when we use the word Levitical, we're talking about the priesthood, the Levites were the priests who were charged with that duty as priests by God. And so the Levitical system, if you will, is that ceremonial law by which they carried out their priestly work. Okay? This stuff is outlined in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus and then repeated again in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy in various places. Okay? Um, but the point is, is that... Um, that Levitical sacrificial system where they're always carrying out these sacrifices has this theme. What is the theme? That sin must be dealt with. That sin must be atoned for. That it's important that you carry out these sacrifices in this very specific way. And if you don't do it the right way, guess what? God's not going to be pleased. Right? You familiar with that? You remember Nadab and Abihu? How many of you remember them? If you don't remember them, they're the sons of, of Aaron. They're the, the two of the uh, priests who are offering sacrifices at the very beginning of the whole, after the tabernacle's been commissioned and they started offering the sacrifices and everything. Effectively, these guys are goofing off with the way that they're offering up the sacrifices. And you know what happened to them? It's, it says wrath came out from the presence of God and destroyed them. In other words, they were toast like that, right? Because they didn't offer the sacrifice right. You remember when the, when the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, was to go into the Holy of Holies, what would he do? Tie a rope around his leg. Why would they do that? Because that was a fearful place he was entering into. And if he didn't do things just right, guess what might happen to him? And nobody wants to go in there to pull him out. You with me? So you got the rope. <laughs> That's what the rope is for. Consider what the rope says about the holiness of God. Consider what the rope says about how important it is to God that sin be dealt with properly. 
there's volumes spoken in the rope. Would you agree? But so you see these themes that are are you know uh, always present in these pictures, and this theme of atonement is something that's almost always present when there's a messianic prophecy. Okay, sin must be dealt with. Let me tell you, with sin got dealt with finally and completely on this cross. Amen. Okay, and you'll add nothing to it. Another theme uh, that's present is substitution. There must be a replacement. Because of the consequences of sin, it becomes necessary for a replacement to be sacrificed in the place of the one who has sinned. Otherwise, one would have to die and be separated from God. Okay? I'll give you uh, an example of the substitution would be the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement. You remember the, um, the two goats in the Day of Atonement? One of them would be sacrificed, right, as the atonement sacrifice. What would they do with the other one? They would lay their hands on the head of that goat and confess the sins of the nation of Israel first, right? And then he would be sent out into the wilderness. He'd be taken out as far into the wilderness as possible so that he would never return again, right? And that's a portrait of the complete forgiveness of God of sins, drowned in the deepest part of the sea, removed as far as the east is from the west, right? That's what that scapegoat is picturing. But if you will, that scapegoat is a substitution for the sins of the people. In other words, instead of the people being taken out and banished from God, right? The sins were placed on this goat and he was taken out as a substitution. Same happens with the lamb that gets sacrificed there, right? He's a sacrifice. He gets sacrificed in place of the people. Blood must be shed. You understand? And so this is what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. Either you're going to die for your sins or Christ is going to die for your sins. You with me? And if Christ dies for your sins, it's because his atonement is substitution for you. He dies in your place. Amen? You with me? Not to mention that all these sacrifices they made, they had to be without blemish, and they had to be you know, the most perfect of the types of animals that they could find. You know, mm-hmm. clearly points to Christ and, and his sinlessness and perfection. Right. So what Greg is saying is like, when they, would, when they would find a lamb for the sacrifice, that lamb was to be an unblemished lamb without defect, right? And, and, and to meet certain criteria. And that as you read through those things, those just aren't minor details that are there in the text. They mean something. They're pointing to the purity of Christ and his unblemished nature, right? We'll see some of that in our Old Testament types that we look at. So there's these two themes we talked about, atonement for sin and substitution. Another one is faith, not works. Another theme that you will find present in these messianic prophecies is that it isn't about what you can do to earn God's favor. It is instead what God has provided to cover your sin. You follow me? Let me tell you, every religion in the world, apart from orthodox, historic Christianity, has a system of works by which you merit God's favor. Okay? And when you find that in a religion, you run. Okay? Because that's the one characteristic that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. 
Christianity is not a religion about how you earn God's favor by something you do. God is satisfied with the death of Christ on the cross and the perfect life that he lives. And when you get justified before God, you get declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done. Period. And you can't add anything to it. And you can't take anything away from it. His righteousness is perfect in the sight of God and his death is perfect to cover the debt of sin that you owe. Amen? And so Christ is embraced by faith, by trust, not by works. You cannot work your way into embracing Christ. There isn't enough good works for you to do to please God because you've heaped up a life full of sins. So even if you, in perfect obedience from this day forward, please God with everything you think, act, see, say, and do, right? You still have a life full of sins that you have to deal with before a holy God. What are you going to do with those? Well, like I said before, either you're going to die for your sins or Christ is going to die for your sins. And the only way for you to embrace Christ is by faith. What does that look like? Repentance from sin. Amen? And trust in God's perfect righteousness in Christ. Repentance and faith is how Christ is embraced. Okay? This is a theme in Messianic prophecies. I'll show you what I mean as we look at a few of these. So, if you will, let's, um, let's, let's look at the Old Testament with these kinds of eyes. As we're going through all those little details in the story, remember, those things are pointing to Christ. They're teaching us about the, the comprehensive detail that is in Christ uh, and it's teaching us comprehensive details about our salvation and about the Savior. Amen? If you will, turn to Genesis chapter 22. The Lord shall provide. In Genesis chapter 22, we read of the story of God testing Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Of course, the background here is that Abraham's wife Sarah was barren all her life until God came and pronounced them a son that Sarah would bear, and that he would be Abraham's heir. This came after God made a covenant with Abram and gave him a new name, Abraham, which means father of many nations. That's in Genesis 17, 4 and 5. And, and there in Genesis chapter 22, it says this in verse 1 and following. I'm sorry, this is verse 22. Is that right? Yeah, it's verse 1. I'm sorry. I don't know how I got that messed up. Verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, how many of you had a ch got a chance to read Genesis 22 this week? A few of you. Okay. I hope you're familiar with the story. Okay? But here in this story, I want you to consider the magnitude of what's being said. Okay? In the life of Abraham, here's this man where years and years ago, when he was a younger man, God promised to him that his children were going to be like the stars of the sky. Right? And, and that he would have... 
uh, uh, children uh, that could be could not be counted. And so for years and years and years he waits, and his wife appears to be barren. Well, this lasts all the way into their old age. And at the point of their old age, uh, after they had committed a great sin by uh, uh, Abraham seeking to have uh, an heir through his servant, uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar, and that whole story. And, and um, here, here God comes to them late in their life, and, and he says, okay, now Sarah's going to have a son, right? And, um, of course, just like God said a year later, Sarah had a son, right? Do you remember when God told Abraham Sarah's going to have a son, what Sarah did? She was in the other room, and she heard it, right? What'd she do? She laughed. She laughed. And so the son came, and his name is Isaac. You know what that means? Laughter. Isaac means laughter. And the son of Abraham's long-awaited promise from God appears. And so now he has this son, this heir. Of course, you know, to Abraham, this was everything, right? So now he has this son. He's raising this son. And consider, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to the land of Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Pretty heavy stuff. Strange indeed that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. Much could be said here as the story holds many treasures of Bible truth. But consider that in this brief chapter, Christ is foreseen in many ways. Okay, so in the narrative of Genesis 22, I'm telling you this is a messianic type. Okay, and I want to help you see these little pictures of Christ in the text. And here's a few of them that I recorded, although there are more. Number one, the father is to make a costly sacrifice of his only son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And what's that a picture of? God the father having to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, whom he loves. Amen? You see that? How about the willing submission of the son? As you read through this text... You know, Isaac goes right to the altar. No kicking, no screaming, no squirming. Some really puzzled questions, <laughs> right? Like, hey, Dad, we, we, got, the, we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Right? Amazing. Right? And consider that they get all the way to the point where Abraham has bound his son on the wood and has now raised a knife. Right? Another picture here. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice even as Christ carried his own cross. There's little details in the story that are just screaming Christ. Amen? How about the name given of the place, Moriah, by Abraham, means this. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. What's that a theme of? 
That's a theme of faith, not works. Right? It's, it's a theme where, listen, God's going to do this thing. You won't have to do this thing. God's going to do it. You with me? That is really clear in this story. How about this? God does provide the sacrifice. A ram in the thicket caught by his horns, thus showing God's gracious provision. This foreshadows the truth of faith not works and substitutionary atonement. Listen, Isaac didn't have to die. Instead, there was a replacement. And you know what it was? It was a burnt offering. You know what a burnt offering was for, right? To atone for sin. So these themes are all present in this little picture of what happens. But let me tell you something. Isaac doesn't have to die. God provides a lamb. Amen? Okay. The place. Get this. All right. I want you to consider this. Here's your Bible. You're reading Genesis chapter 22. Okay? This was written 2,000 years before Christ was born. I'm sorry. This story happened 2,000 years before Christ was born. It was written 1,500 years. 500 years later, Moses wrote this account by the revelation of God. Okay? But this story happened 2,000 years before Christ was born, and it has all these themes of the cross in it. Okay? And, and with that in mind, I want to point out the last one to you. Get, dig this. The place, a mountain in the region of Moriah, is the very place of Christ's crucifixion 2,000 years later. Also, the mountain on which the temple was later built and God was worshipped by the Jews. Are you familiar with Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1? Turn there. Now here's a book of the Bible that was written some 500 years after the Moses account. Look what it says there. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. 2 Chronicles 3.1 Now, Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. The foundations of that temple are there today. We know right where it is, right? Where is it? Just like the Bible said there, 1000 BC, it's in Jerusalem. What's it called? Mount Moriah, right here in this text. Okay? Now, what I'm trying to point out is consider that this narrative in Genesis 22 is talking about something that happened 2,000 years before Christ was born, that this father would sacrifice his son on this mountain with all of these themes in it. Okay? This is a supernatural thing. These words in this book are supernatural words that find their fulfillment in the Father sacrificing His Son and providing a lamb to sacrifice the Lord has provided. Are you with me? It's amazing. It's amazing. In other words, the story of Abraham's test is a type or a typical prophecy of Christ the Messiah who would become the sacrifice that the Lord provides. Consider the profound words of Derek Tidball. Here's what he says. Glimpses of Calvary can be seen repeatedly in Genesis 22. A constellation of clues burst from the story like a shower of lights that explodes skyward from a splendid firework. 
Here, listen to what he says. Here, the father gives, the son surrenders, the Lord provides, the ram dies, and the people profit. Here, for sure, the cross is anticipated. Amen? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. How about the story of the lamb's blood? In Exodus chapter 12, we read of the Lord's Passover. Exodus chapter 12, 11. On this day, Israel was to prepare a lamb for a meal, an unblemished male roasted with fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and the whole family is to eat the lamb. Are you familiar with the Passover story of Exodus 12? Right? Here, the death angel passes over those families who have the blood of the lamb smeared over their doorpost of their home as he comes to slay the firstborn. This, of course, is the night before the Lord will lead his people out of the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. As they eat, the family is to eat it with their bags packed and ready to leave town. This becomes an annual celebration for Israel in the years to come as God commands them to reenact this Passover each year in remembrance of the exodus of Egypt. And uh, just a short text there, Exodus 12, 11 and following. Now, he says, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you um, when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Okay? So here we have this little text in, in Exodus. And here God enacts this annual feast for them. And it has these little elements to it. They're going to have this meal and it's supposed to be a lamb and it's cooked in a certain way. And when they eat it, they're going to all pack up their bags and they got to do this thing. Okay? Interesting thing that's going to happen here. Well, of course, the whole narrative of the Exodus reveals many attributes of God and portrays his gracious dealings with his people. But the Passover specifically points to Christ. Now here again, we see in the narrative of the Old Testament, Christ the Messiah pictured in a mysterious, typical prophecy. Consider here some of the ways Christ is pictured. A lamb is sacrificed and the blood is seen as protection from God's wrath in the plague of the firstborn. The destroying angel passes over all who have the blood applied. Okay? And, and there you have um, a lamb being what? Sacrificed. And there's this theme again, sacrifice, atonement, okay? The lamb is to be an unblemished male. This portrays the perfect righteousness of Christ the Messiah. It is to be roasted with fire. Now consider this, the lamb is to be roasted with fire and eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Now think about that. Think about this lamb. Roasted with fire. Eaten with bitter herbs. 
and unleavened bread. What does that say? It says volumes, right? Christ is going to go through a little bit of fire, would you say? Just a little bit. And let me tell you, it will be a bitter, bitter thing. And of course, the unleavened bread speaks to what? The absence of sin. Yeast in the Bible is a type of sin, right? That speaks to the purity of Christ. These roasted fire eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread portray the severe trial, bitter suffering, and purity of Christ and his cross. How about this? The whole family is to eat the flesh of the lamb and it is to be totally consumed. This portrays the union of the sacrificed Christ that he has with his people. Get this. The family is to eat the lamb. The family is to eat the lamb. Consider that. Consider that. And, and um, what that says about Christ and those to whom the blood covers their sin. Right? We're one with him. Jesus later says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Amen? Lastly, through this feast, the people are set free from a life of savory, bond, slavery, bondage, and bitter oppression and led into the desert to be led and shepherded by God himself. So here again, we see Christ the Messiah portrayed through the storyline of events that happened some 1,500 years before he lived. Astounding. This is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. I want you to see in the New Testament, the New Testament writers look back at the Passover and they, he, he calls Christ our Passover. Amen? It would also be good to note that the whole Passover account portrays the faithfulness, compassion, justice, and power of God in many marvelous ways. Family, when you read your Old Testament, you need to see in the Old Testament the storyline of creation and redemption. Okay? In other words, you are to have a redemptive historical view of the narrative of Scripture. Yes, it is what it is. It says what it says. It means what it means. And in it is portraying this glorious picture of what God is doing in the whole creation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and your kindness to us. We thank you for your rich, rich word. I pray, God, that for each and every person that is here, that the Old Testament will come alive to us and that in it we will see Jesus the Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to learn more and more uh, as we study and read the Old Testament and that, Lord, our faith would be nourished and that you would be glorified in and through our life. We thank you for the privilege that we have to freely proclaim your name in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.